Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with yet another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. Today's episode is with Jesse McDougall, who is a farmer at Studio Hill, a fourth generation family farm in Vermont and Savory Influencer Hub. He's also co-founder of Regenerative Food Network and CEO of Southshire Meats. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So give us a little of an overview. How did you get attracted to farming? Oh, I was attracted to a girl who had a farm. Is okay. The, is the most direct route. Um, yeah, I didn't grow up in farming. I grew up in the mountains of New Hampshire, and I uh, loved being outdoors and was outdoorsy and handy. But no, I fell in love with a girl who had a was fourth generation on a farm, and and um, through an early and un, unfortunate death in the family of her aunt, my wife and I ended up farmers and, okay. and through tragedy came opportunity and, and we learned our way as we went. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us then what age was that when you started onto the farm? Oh, let's think that was 10 years ago. I was 33. My wife was a little younger than that. Um, and she had grown up visiting the farm every summer and and going there school vacations and loved it and knew it like the back of her hand but wasn't farming per se and and yeah i was just a you know a web geek i was a web programmer who knew nothing about it and and her aunt died and we found ourselves suddenly grass farmers mhm mhm and so what was that first uh, year or so like of you of you kind of being on the farm Oh, it was panic, uh, panic. Okay. And <laughs> it was pure, pure worry. You know, you're just, I, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, my, you know, Edie, my wife's aunt had it all in hand. She made it look easy and, um, nobody else knew much about it because she had had everything handled so capably for 40 years. I mean, she started managing there when she was 16 mm. and so, we had to, you know, she died of cancer, uh, a brain cancer that was, that came mm. on in 2011 and she passed away in 2012 at 56 years old. And um, so we, our first decision was to stop spraying any chemicals or poisons on the land. And mm. because we were scared that there might be a connection there, you know, this, this superhero in our lives was just taken out all of a sudden. And yeah. so, you know, the farm had been managed conventionally. It was a conventional hay and corn farm and horse boarding facility in those days. And um, we stopped spraying anything and everything. And right away going into 20, the winter of 2012 and, and then uh, next season, we ran out to the fields to expect quote unquote organic abundant growth and found 
our fields couldn't produce anything and mm. and it was devastating and and uh we panicked didn't know what we'd done wrong couldn't figure out you know what we you know we thought we had caused the collapse of the farm and you know years later we came to realize we had only uncovered a dead ecosystem we didn't create the dead ecosystem we had mm-hmm. revealed it you know but um but no we lost crops that year we lost crops the next year and we all had off the farm jobs to support our losses in in farming and and um just kind of muscled through as farmers do in those years and but that started our our experimentation and research and reading and conversations with people about how to bring a farm back to abundance after it's been depleted. Uh, Mm -hmm. And we weren't going with chemicals and we didn't like, we weren't, we weren't, we were stubborn, you know, and we just kind of came around to holistic management and the whole savory um, suite of, you know, management tools and and Mm -hmm. the idea of putting animals back on the land to help the land which was so foreign to us because we had seen the destruction the horses had done on the land and we had seen the damage cows had done when it was a dairy and the idea of putting more hooves on the ground to make it stronger was was weird but we like i said we're stubborn and so we we tried it and And the key, of course, being the animals aren't bad for the land. It's the poor management that's bad for the land. And so with those management changes and a lot of experimentation, we were able to restart the carbon and water and mineral cycles in the land. And things started spiraling back in the right direction. Thank goodness. Yeah. So how did you get introduced to the savory systems? Uh, it's kind of a fluke, you know, like his TED talk came out, Alan Savory's TED talk came mm-hmm. out in 2013. And we had just had a little baby boy in late 2013. And he was colicky. And I was um, up late, I think two, three in the morning, bouncing him on my knee, playing these TED talks on loop because they were, you know, monotone and soothing. And they got, yeah. you know, they were something I could watch while he was falling asleep. And Alan Savory's TED Talk came on. It was in heavy rotation at that time. And um, he, I, I didn't listen. I, wasn't, I didn't care. I was just kind of zoned out. But when he started talking about the stocky plants and washouts and green slime and bare soil he was seeing in the grasslands that were desertifying in Africa, it caught my attention right away. And I, you know, because I had seen that same thing going on in my backyard in, the, in one of the most humid environments on the planet you know it was yeah. totally totally different from that and and so i started paying attention and reading more about it and like i said i was totally skeptical but i was totally desperate as well and you know 10 i guess it was 7 years later i got to meet him and spend a few days with him and tell him that very same story yeah about not giving a shit about his his dead talk and then all yeah. of a sudden it changes my life and he got a kick out of it. So, yeah. So talk to us a little bit about what we've talked about the farm. What is the farm? How many acres? What's the, the different uh, enterprises on the farm? Great. Yeah. It's a gorgeous farm. It's, it's um, expanding. 
um, unlike most farms. Like when I started there, it was 220 acres and now we're at 320 acres. Oh, wow. Because um, we've been able to acquire more land around us as, as people sell. And, um, you know, not because of a trust fund or a, you know, a, a, uh, off the farm job, but because the, the land management we practice now is profitable and, the, and, mm-hmm. and we can get loans for it. And um, so it is, it is a rolling green hilltop farm in, in Shaftesbury, Vermont. We have the, um, it's a neat, it's like the foothills of two mountain ranges. There's the um, Adirondacks to the West and the green mountains to the East. And we are staring at both of them and it's really, really gorgeous and so our main enterprise right now is sheep we have Mm -hmm. a flock of that gets up to about as big as uh 200 sheep um and we're going for more i think we can get up to 300 sheep uh, with 100 breeding ewes in the next year or two and then um in some years we raise poultry and we have a um, farm stays enterprise going which is been key to our um, um, livestock operation in that it kind of cushions the dips and dives in agricultural, um, you know, production and brings a lot of customers to our door. And then we do uh, consulting and and, uh, education as well on the farm and off the farm. So I think it's those three, those three legs that mm-hmm. hold up the stool now um andrew knoffel is at uh, clearbrook farm he's not too far from you correct no he's he's a hero of mine he's right down the road we can almost oh, see see yeah. his farm from my farm okay yes i've been there multiple times they do a great job over there um They're great yeah okay yep so now i'm really located because you when you got in the podcast you said you know i used to be a neighbor and i was like yeah you're from, vermont's a big place but now that i've realized exactly where you are you're very close <laughs> very close yeah no yeah. I, I i used to um you don't remember but i used to uh rent your featherman equipment and i'd come up and you'd unload it out of the storage container okay. into my truck and off yes pop. Now I remember. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Now I remember. Yes. Okay. That makes, yes. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, un, it's, it's, it's only been what now set, well, it's been seven years since I've been up there. So I guess it has been a little bit of time. Yeah. Yeah. Those were our, those, you know, what's interesting is you, I was running your feathering equipment because I couldn't afford my own. And mm-hmm. that was the first experiments. Um, those chickens were the first experiments that we did with this regenerative ag stuff. So that must've been 2013, 14, somewhere in there. Yep. Yep. And, and we were moving those chickens through gravel pits, you know, we were feeding them. Wow. Yeah. Grain, but we weren't, we weren't. um, And we were building, we built these Joel Salatin style, you know, mobile coops that, that put the birds right on the field and, um, and just trying it out, moving the birds every 12 hours, trying to get some interaction with animals in the soil. And, and it worked so well, uh, we couldn't believe it. And we would, you know, like two days after the birds moved out of a spot, it looked terrible. Two weeks, it had new blades of grass. And two months later, it was just like a lush green lawn coming down the middle of this gravel pit. Mm-hmm. And um, that was, that was the, 
all the proof we needed that we needed to double down and double down hard. And so the, um, we were able to sell all those birds and we came over to your place to get the equipment and process them all on the farm and just kept kind of spiraling up from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, now what other major changes have you made to the farm now, uh, since you've taken it over? Oh man, what hasn't changed? That's, <laughs> that's probably easier to answer. Um, well, we still do the hay operation. Um, we've, we've gone in a, um, but we've moved from square bells, which are very labor intensive to round bales, which was a huge back and time saver for us. Um, we started lambing when we, when we started with sheep, we started lambing in March, which everybody told us was lambing season. Um, it was just like common knowledge that you you breed so that you lamb in March. And mm-hmm. so we did that. And, you know, we were having ewes give birth at 20 below zero in, in, and our casualty rates were too high. And it was just terrible to get up at four in the morning and go out and do that. Plus the grain costs alone to try to keep pregnant and nursing ewes healthy and strong when the farm is producing nothing was, was nuts. So we transitioned that to be May and June when the deer were having their fawn in the area, when the landscape could actually provide for the, for the animals. And so that was a huge shift in the right direction when we started doing that. And we, we, we threw a lot of breeding, but also through that shift, we're able to eliminate buying grain for the sheep entirely. And that was a huge economic boost for us. Really? So you went from to no grain at all for the sheep? Yeah. Yeah. When that, so, um, after the chickens, um, after the chicken enterprise was up and going, we, we wanted to scale up, right. You know, our, our livestock operation. And, and we thought, well, we're, we're doing chickens. Let's do more chickens. And we did the math and it literally came to, we would need to have raised a million chickens a year on our acres to cover it all in one year the way mm. we were doing it. Nobody, nobody wanted that. So yeah, we, um, not only could we, you know, didn't want that, but we, who would process them and who would sell them and who would buy them and all that. So, yeah. um, so we decided to get a sheep or two lambs, I think it was to proceed the chickens on the fields in the rotation. And, and the next day a woman knocked on our door and, and said, I, I need a home for 45 sheep. Do you guys know anybody? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause she had asked actually, and the, the woman had asked down at Clearbrook farm and Andrew told her to come up the hill yeah, and talk to us. And so we just kind of swallowed hard and took on that flock. And, um, but they were, they were um, a hair breed of sheep, which we didn't know what that meant at that time. Yeah. So we thought, we thought we were getting into the wool business, but um, you know, they shed, so we weren't, so we were suddenly in the meat business and, um, they were very grain dependent at that time, uh, cause they were kept in a barn year round. And mm. after a few generations, they didn't remember what grass was and nor could they survive on it. So we put them out on lush, you know, the best grass we had at the time and, um, they ate all they could and they got slow and, and weaker and, and we, finally figured out that they were dependent on grain so um what we did was we started 
breeding them back to grass, which took years, took five, six years. You know, every year when the lambs were born, half of them roughly would be okay on grass alone and after they, you know, weaned. And then half of them would get slow and weak and we would pull them out and put them in their own grassy paddock, but feed them grain. And they'd come back to health and then we would um, send them to the butcher at the end of the Mm -hmm. season and then breed the others. And we just kind of bred those that were getting stronger and stronger on their natural diets. And finally, six years later, we had a grass fed flock again of about 60 breeding ewes in all of their lambs. And that was our first grain free year, um, which because we were buying regenerative grain organic regenerative grain from Stonehouse Grains down in Hudson Valley. It was, it was, which we believed to be the right thing. It was still just wasn't cheap, you know, yeah. we, weren't, we weren't buying the local grain mill stuff, um, the commodity stuff. Um, so a huge, huge savings for us there. Um, and other than that, just changes on the farm have been, um, really focusing on trying to make everything on the farm work for us. There was, you know, four generations of infrastructure and equipment and dark corners that were just full of junk that, you know, just collected over time and the family never thought of because they'd abandoned it to the generational mess, you know? (laughs) And so I don't know where we found the energy because we don't have it now, but the, my wife and I looked around and said, look at all these dark corners that aren't doing anything. Mm. let's put them into use. And so we, we um, just started renting a construction dumpster and sitting it on the farm. And we, we had, I think it was 30 construction dumpsters hauled off the farm of just junk. There was nothing valuable in any of this stuff. And um, we just cleaned out building by building and turned one into a farm store where our guests at the Airbnb could come down to and turned one into an Airbnb, um, made an office. And we just kind of set out at breathing new use into these old, old buildings, as opposed to, you know, buying, buying more or, uh, getting loans or, you know, we, our, our motto on the farm was never buy anything because we could make it or find it somewhere in the mess. And that really, helped us we were able to spend a lot of time and not a lot of money to get things um to where they were producing again yeah so then talk to us about the sheep now do you sell the how do you sell the sheep well now what we're doing is we're selling lamb as retail and wholesale and the meat has been good like we we have we stumbled into what people call the best lamb they've ever tasted. And I don't know quite what to attribute that to, whether it's the breed of sheep that we have, which is a Katahdin breed, um, which were developed in Maine for flavor and, and hardiness and, and personality. So it's a really easy keeper of an animal. And and we've bred a whole bunch of parasite resistance into them. So I'm very happy with that. So that's been good. And, but, margins were still slim on meat, right? Cause mm-hmm. it's food. And one day I'm over at the, the slaughterhouse and I'm dropping off some animals and I see these bags of sheepskins go out of the back and just get hauled into a, a render truck. Mm-hmm. 
And I was like, don't people do something with those? I think that people do something with those. And so <laughs> yeah. I did, I did some quick Googling and I, and, um, and it just so happened that the next weekend in Randolph, Vermont, which is just a few hours North of me, there was a grand opening of something called Vermont natural sheepskins by a woman named Sarah Scully. Um, Cause I didn't, I knew like sheepskins were a thing, but I didn't want to send them to Bucks County or these giant, industrial yeah. tanneries because you know i'm i'm trying to regenerate the ecosystem i don't want to participate in tearing it down so but this thing called vermont natural sheepskins was opening next weekend and my wife and i jumped in the car and we headed up there and we visited with sarah and and so we started sending her sheepskins with, and and she would tan them up with a veggie tanning process and all natural the worst thing to come out of that process is salt you know it's a mm-hmm. It's a process that's organically, I mean, yeah, organically certified in the UK, but not here because we don't have such a program. Anyway, um, that changed our, our, the, the economics of a sheep entirely for us. So where we were getting retail, maybe $300 um, per lamb for the meat, we were now getting $300 for the meat and $250 to $300 for the skin. Mm. after tanning and we mm. and yeah we, i mean that that put our dollars per acre right through the yeah. roof you oh know? absolutely and, yeah and so um so now our main our main products are lamb and sheepskins and we're getting into uh more value-added stuff like bone broth and um pet food and you know, anything else we can make use of from our, from the animal, you know, primarily to respect the sacrifice of the animal and make sure Mm -hmm. that nothing is wasted, which is ridiculous. And second, um, to recapture all the value of our effort and work, you know, and, and that's been a huge advantage, I think, um, that we've had in that we don't view waste as waste. We never have. And we are always looking for ways to capture the value of things that other people throw away. I mean, our Airbnbs are gorgeous and very popular and filled with Craigslist furniture, you know? Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 You know, it, it, my wife has a talent for finding, she found a $8,000 Italian 10 foot dining table, but she paid a hundred bucks for it. Cause this guy oh just my wanted, gosh. Yeah. wanted it out of his house, you know? And she yeah. like, didn't know that, but she brought it home, took a picture of this Italian ta- tag on the bottom of it. Yeah. But that's been our approach is like, just, you know, we don't have money, uh, spend time, not money and, and, and repurpose everything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you've also been the author of the first generative agriculture legislation. Talk to us a little about that. Yeah, that was interesting. That was an interesting experience. Um, I won't say it was a, a wild success. It was fun to do. And I learned quite a bit, but I'm, you know, I'm standing on the hill on my farm one day. I'm talking to this, this great friend of mine named Brian Campion, who happened to be a state rep at the time. Um, and he had been familiar with the farm. He had been there. He had like had been friends with Edie and, and, um, and some of the people there. And so he had seen the farm when it was conventionally managed and he'd seen it collapse and he'd seen it start coming back to health and abundance. And, and so I'm talking to him one day on the Hill about what we had done 
and he had his state rep hat on, you know, mm-hmm. and he's like, what can we do? What can the state do to support this kind of ag? I mean, Vermont is struggling with so much, I should say so many problems in agriculture, like from polluted waterways to the collapse of family farms to struggling dairy industry. He's like, this, this approach could help so much of it. And I was like, well, I mean, what we could do is, and I just started rattling off ways Mm -hmm. that we could support this kind of farming. And he said, he just stopped me. He's like, okay, write it down, write it down and send me an email. And so I wrote it all down and it wasn't very well thought out because it was just writing to a friend. And then he, he um, sent it to his lawyer that works with him at the state legislature and cleaned it up a lot. And he's like, all right, turn it into a bill. I need you at Montpelier next week. And, um, and that was that. And like, we fine tuned it in committee and stuff like that. But basically the idea was that any state region organization, whatever town um, should be promoting stewardship of land, whether that's by a homeowner an ag producer or, you know, forest manager that re generates our natural resources and making it easier for them to do that. So we had, had created this, this idea for a, like a regenerative certification program in the state where if you volunteered for it as a farmer or landowner, you could get tested for various things on your land, like biodiversity and water infiltration and mineral cycling and carbon content and I had a you know a battery of tests that I thought would prove <clears throat> regeneration, and I sent that around to a bunch of people who knew better than I did. Um, and and then you could get tax breaks from the state um, beyond the ag tax breaks because you were helping them combat the water pollution in Lake Champlain and and all these other problems we were having. So that was the that was the brunt of it, and and it went through. You know, it landed in Montpelier and people had no idea um, what regenerative ag was, and that was fine. So I did a lot of talking and educating and trying to talk to them about the fact that we can farm and regenerate the ecosystem at the same time. And it's possible and, and, and whatnot. And, um, and that was all, it was well-received. People applauded it and uh, voice support for it and some reps and senators really got behind it one is Keisha Rahm who's now running for U.S. Congress um, and and she sought me out and really put her energy into helping me shepherd it through as far as we could take it um, so that meant a lot to me so got good support but um, ultimately it was it was flawed because I didn't know what I was writing and and it was kicked out of committee before getting to a vote, um, which is fine. But what it did do is it introduced the idea of regenerative ag to the Vermont legislature and got a very um, healthy conversation started in the state about what kind of ag we want here. Um, and on the heels of that bill, I'm not claiming credit for this, but the next year six or seven other states introduced similar bills and five of them passed, um, which was encouraging. And, uh-huh. and, and Vermont decided to start a working group to look at this problem and project. And 
and the working group is, I don't know, I think it has a three-year commission. So it's still, still going because it took them three years to create the working group, but we'll see what happens in this state. So in the meantime, I don't, I, you know, I'm not anti-government, but I do think it is one of the slowest ways to go about getting change to happen in this mm. in the world, you know? And so we're looking at other ways now with market-based solutions and, and trying to build a system that makes it economically a, a no-brainer for farmers to farm in a way mm-hmm. that regenerates their natural resources. Um, however they choose to do it, we're totally practice agnostic and, and just want, the, the outcomes, you know, farmers know their own land better than I ever could and, and what works and what doesn't. So um, we just want to help them build a system for their specific context and time and available resources that helps them thrive economically while thriving ecologically. Very cool. Now, didn't Vermont or isn't there some current legislation that's happening around water, uh, pumping water? I'm not too up on that. Um, okay. I do know that there are there are required agricultural practices that the state came down with. It used to be recommended agricultural practices, but yeah. now it's required agricultural practices. And and I'm not big on dictating practices, as I just said, because yeah. you know, you know, on my farm, I'm supposed to have a riparian area. I have 25 yards between any production area and a body of water. And mm. that's good. That's like containing the problem where my field's a problem, um, but not solving the problem. So it's like a whole bunch of, of way uh, attempts to contain uh, farm runoff, which needs to happen, but they're band-aids. They're not going to solve the problem. And yeah, let's get and, to the root of the problem. Yeah. Fix the problem. <laughs> yeah. So that's my point. Like if your fields aren't, are, are, you know, two feet thick of carbon rich soil, they're not leaching anything. That is just like a sponge that will never let go of anything. And you don't need a riparian area. Your, um, your nutrients will stay put. Yeah. Which is what we're going for in our farm. So I view my whole field as a riparian area, you know, like that's, there's no need for it, but you know, they're not, they're not really, the state isn't thinking about me and my farm or those who are farming like me. They're thinking about the big bad actors and trying to reel them in. So I understand the well, need for it. And they try to put everyone into a box and to them, the box in Vermont is a dairy farm. That's right. Yeah. So, um, which yeah. is, which is nuts to me. And I, you know, I'm on an old dairy farm. I, I I was never in dairy, but I know the I know a lot of the stories, and I know a lot of the mm-hmm. the uh, the hardship. Um, I don't know all the hardship, you know. Uh, I, I but I am a farmer, and I do know farming hardship. But you know, we can never. I put a target on my back every time I say this in Vermont, but I don't think we should be a dairy state anymore. Um, when the local markets could support local dairies, there was room for it. Right now, there's so much um, competition from the Midwest where they have more efficient landscape. Um, they have, you know, where 10,000 acres needs 
two guys and a GPS controlled tractor to manage. You know, if you have 10,000 acres in Vermont, mm. you have 20,000, you know, yeah, half, yeah. half acre fields. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You can't get to all of them in one day. So like the idea, and we don't have the sunlight they have. So the idea that we could ever, ever produce enough commodity milk to support a statewide dairy industry is flawed. And I think that our wet rolling hills are much better suited to other means of agricultural production, like small ruminants or apple orchards or vineyards are, you know, mm-hmm. coming on strong. Um, but, you know, squeezing cornfields into every little bit of river bottom land that we have will never, will never be, be efficient enough to compete with the commodity coming out of the Midwest. Yeah. And so we need to rethink agriculture here to, yeah. to fit the landscape instead of well, fit the economic what I, what situation. I think Vermont is built for, and, and Vermont did this very well, was the small family farm where they have 20 cows and maybe they have you know some sheep and a few pigs. And you know yeah. if everyone was selling direct to consumer on those scales, then I feel that would work. Um, because those small fields can, yes, be hayed and, and feed those small amount of cows. But you're right. If you try to do the 3,000 cows dairies, it's not going to work economically compared to the Midwest. That's right. And that's what the, that's what the distribution system and economic situation is kind of forcing yeah. farms to do. It's like, you know, a small farm with 30 cows, you know, can deliver X number of gallons per week. And just like in the, you know, in the meat industry, they're getting shut out of processing because it's like, oh, yeah. bring, me, bring me, you know, 10,000 hundredweight, you know, or yes. whatever. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So, so you have to consolidate just to even play ball. So I agree with, with the fact that it's possible. These small family farms can thrive, but the problem is, and this is a problem I get asked a lot is, oh, they say to me, Jesse, all right, Studio Hill is profitable economically it is profitable ecologically why is not everybody doing this and the answer is because you can only scale to a certain point in this region right you my land can support let's say 300 sheep right but yeah uh, let's say i grow to that level where do i get it processed Uh, yeah because the the slaughterhouses are booked out for three years and where do i have where do i sell it you know there are four professors in this town that can afford local food and one of them likes lamb you know so do i just depend on that guy to support my whole farm i need access to better markets right so um that's kind of been our push in the last two years is to build in the infrastructure farms need to get the processing support that they need and then to aggregate to serve bigger markets. Right. So we started a company called Southshire Meats, which is one of a few companies we're starting, but we started with meat because there's a, there's a market demand for it, which is great. And there's, mm-hmm. um, and it's kind of like the point in the spear um, economically, like once we get a thriving meat produ- production farm network going that creates a a need for grain for to feed the omnivores in the system right so then we can bring in grain farmers yeah um and putting animals 
on the landscape on these wet rolling hills and managed properly, which of course is key, is the quickest way to start regenerating our natural resources. But that aggregation model is what changes the dynamic of farms in the area from competing with one another for those small local dollars to collaborating to fill the markets in Boston and New York or at you know giant brands like um, Epic Provisions or um, Rep Provisions or you know um, Patagonia, you know uh, who are all looking for verified regenerative goods and food. Yeah. And, and, and there's demand right now that could pull this whole farming system forward to a sustainable thriving level. If only we had the infrastructure in place, which we're trying to build out in our yes. region now. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's really telling because the processing aspect, the government has somewhat addressed it. I mean, I think they put some money towards uh, processing plants, but it's going to be for medium-sized processing plants, which to them is like $10 million operation plus, and it's not going to, I think, solve your processing problem. It's going to solve, you know, these much bigger processing problems. Yeah. Well, it's amazing the differences in scale we're talking about, right? Oh, so the, absolutely. Yeah. The, and that's one of the things I've learned. Like we opened a, a slaughterhouse right here in, in Wilmington, Vermont, called mm -hmm. Higley Hill Processing. And we have a USDA inspector there every time that we're running, which is great. Mm -hmm. And we're running every day. Um, the, just like other slaughterhouses, the demand was there and it just booked out for a year in advance, mm -hmm. um, which we're struggling with trying to trying to open up more capacity. But But these inspectors from the USDA plants travel. And mm -hmm. so they'll be with us one day when we're doing you know, processing 20 sheep and they'll be telling us about how they just came from Iowa where they're doing um, 800 beef an hour. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and more. Yeah. And then there's these middle, middle plants like that do, you know, somewhere between those two levels. Um, so we're microscopic, but our, <laughs> our plan is to put these microscopic plants mm -hmm. um, and dot them to build 10 out throughout the region, right? Where the farmers are. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to travel four hours um, to get processing done. You know, when I, yeah. when we graduated from the Featherman equipment and got bigger than we wanted to process, we, we had to drive four hours um, four times to get our chickens processed, which mm -hmm, just mm -hmm. totally killed the, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Killed the profit margin, you know? Yeah. And, um, so we could do it locally illegally, or we could do it, you know, yeah. far, far away legally, uh, uh, profitably or legally. That was the, that was the choice that was put to us. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so we're trying to build distributed regional infrastructure, that that in a hub and spoke model that aggregates food to a brand that gets it out of the region, but also just have this you know half capacity of this infrastructure available to farms who want to sell it under their own steam, which we want to help and support too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that I, I like that quote right there. It's either you know profitably or le legally, and <laughs> that 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 really shouldn't be what farmers struggle with. It should be, you know, working with the people to, I mean, because what are those regulations are there for? They're to keep people safe. 
but unfortunately they are just crippling. They are way too, yeah. I could, I could get on a high horse about this for a while, but. Oh, sure. <laughs> I agree. They're there for a reason. I, I respect and understand their intention. I'm not an anti-regulation guy, but they are. Um, the deeper I get into this, they're totally made for the big players. Yes. Um, and so, for example. Um, they're made for know, Walmart. Yeah. They're made by Walmart, for Walmart, yeah. by Walmart. Um, if you, you know, to build a small meat plant, um, you need, um, you know, you need an employee bathroom and you need an inspector bathroom. Mm-hmm. All right. Seems like a small thing, but it's a pretty big expense when you're trying to build an inexpensive plant on your own farm or something let's, like. Let's clarify. It's a separate bathroom for the inspector, right? It has to be a separate bathroom for the inspector because in big plants, when the inspector would go into the restroom, they would get hassled by the employees. So the regulation was in all meat plants, you need a separate room where the inspector can be safe. Um, Notwithstanding the fact that these are now, you know, the bathroom we want to build is one one room, one toilet, you lock the door, you know, it's just like, yeah, they're not thinking about us when they're making those rules and but having said that you know the usda and all the interactions we've had with them they're pulling for us they really they really want to see small farming in our region succeed and and they've been willing to work with us at every level to make sure it's right Uh um it's when you when you start getting you know up to the regional centers at like philadelphia or um because our regional our regional centers in Philadelphia, nowhere near us. That's when you start running into trouble um, and, and complications and miscommunications and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, but you know, we're committed to working through it. There's gotta be a way forward. Yeah. Hey, thriving farmers. Do you know that you are already standing on the key to bigger yields and better profits to help maximize your yield and profit potential? Look beyond the standard fertility options. Choose Ultra by AgriGrow. Ultra is an ARMRI-listed soil prebiotic technology designed to develop the native microorganisms in your soil. AgriGrow's prebiotic technologies are engineered with the users in mind. Ultra is easy to use and has great tank mixing abilities that won't clog or mess up sprayers or injectors. It also does not require refrigeration like many other probiotic formulas available on the market. In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow. At first, I was a skeptic, but I was able to check out their production facility and meet the owners and staff. This company is great. Over the last year and a half, I've run several different trials using their products and am really impressed with the results that I see. I've seen my soil texture improve during cultivation. I've seen decade-old heirloom corn germinate for the first time. My $6 cost of Ultra boosted my strawberry fields dramatically. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all Thriving Farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out at smallfarm.solutions. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for 10% off discount on your first order. So you do a lot of, uh, to switch topics a bit, you do a lot of education. Talk to us about how that works. Well, um, we do. We do a lot of, we host a lot of groups on the farm. And I do a lot of consulting around the, the country and region. And I, and, I, and I teach a course 
um, at the local college here. Basically, my message in all of this teaching is that um, there's a reason to hope. There's there's a way forward for the species that that isn't the end of the end of the world. You know, so um, I watch my sheep right graze through my mm-hmm. fields, and if they're acting naturally in a natural environment and eating their natural diets then the environment responds by by getting stronger and more abundant and more nutritious so everywhere the sheep go they make that environment more able to feed and sustain them just through their natural behaviors and that's just a product of evolution if if sheep if the natural behavior of sheep was to destroy their food source they wouldn't have survived as a species and humans right now are very good at destroying our food source. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we till the soil to nothing and we spray it with poisons and every year it gets harder for us to grow food for ourselves. And, you know, the UN five years ago said we have 60 years of food left. Mm-hmm. If we keep, if we keep losing topsoil at this rate, and I don't know about you, but that's terrifying. And I have kids and they will be a, a, a around for that yeah and and it's so terrifying i think in fact that people are fixating on it like there's a truck barreling down on them when there's a truck barreling down on you you're staring at that truck and not looking anywhere else Mm -hmm. so so my message to everybody is stop looking at that for a second and i know it's hard because cnn and Mm -hmm. uh, npr and all these news organizations keep bringing it up but stop looking at that for a second and imagine another way forward you know we we farmers around the world are proving and have been proving since you know the beginning of time in various places at various times that humans can live and improve their own environments the way my sheep do Uh you know humans going back through time have gotten it right and have gotten it wrong depending on a thousand different factors you know we have tilled the midwest into a desert we tilled the the fertile crescent into a desert mm-hmm. you know but we've also gotten it right in places and that have sustained humans for for millennia and so um right now we're getting it wrong on a global scale but you know people farmers production farmers around the globe are showing that these old ways, these new ways, these old slash new ways of farming can regenerate natural resources, can produce more food, more abundantly, more nutritiously, and that we should focus on creating that future as opposed to just resigning ourselves to burning up. Mm. And if we focus on and believe and work toward changing the system that's, that's, that is a downward spiral and put our hope in creating the positive feedback loops that we need we can do it and so my my farm is one humble example of that and um i love bringing people in and showing them the before and after pictures of the washouts and the gravel and the sand pits mm-hmm. and and saying but look around you now you know the, the the grass is up to your hip and we've grazed it twice this year, and there are clouds of butterflies flying over your head, and there are thousands of bird species um, flying through the trees, and there are, 
you know, bunnies and foxes and voles and moles in the hedgerow and more turkeys than you've ever seen. Um, while we're producing more food than ever. And so when we educate, when we talk to people, we talk about how management is the problem and that the industrial management of biological systems is the problem. And, mm-hmm. and that management is very easy to change. Very easy. It's not even a, usually a, a problem of infrastructure. It's not a problem of capital. It's not a problem of, of uh, employment. It's just a function of getting up one day and doing it differently. And the um, UN also came out with a report that said, if we spend $300 billion and 30 years doing it this way, you know, by which I mean holistically and regeneratively, I don't mean any particular practice, then we could solve climate change and produce enough world for the uh, enough food for the world in 30 years. Mm. And that is not what <laughs> the news organizations yeah. are pumping because it doesn't drive eyeballs. It's like, oh, good, we're going to fix it. And then you move on and drink your coffee. But that, you know, the iceberg collapsing really keeps your attention. I think you're, what you're saying, too, is there's a way forward. The UN has established it. We've got the, the data to prove it, obviously, through the yeah. Savory Institute and all that. But the well, I mean, I think the news media, A, is not putting it out there because it doesn't make a good story. It doesn't you know, show, as you said, the, the polar bear falling off the, the melting ice cap. And it doesn't also feed their sponsors' pockets. I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. Does, no, people. Smith, yeah. You know, it's a, it, I think it's a. It's a, a um, exercise in abundance versus scarcity, right? So if you have abundance, you have everything you need as a human, you relax, you sit down, you chill, mm-hmm. <laughs> you enjoy life. Very, if you, if you have scarcity in your life or believe you have scarcity in your life, you panic, you collect, you buy, you... <laughs> you yeah. hoard, right? That's the human nature. So uh, you think about all this advertising that's, that's based on scarcity. It's like limited time only or, mm-hmm. or while supplies last or what, they'll make as many as they can sell of whatever you need. But, but they convince you that it's, that it's running out. So you panic and you buy it. And so uh, there's a, the, 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 idea that the world is abundant and it is right now it's abundant and we can feed everybody. We don't have a food shortage problem. We have a distribution problem. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Doesn't get far because it doesn't move our economy forward. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't make people rich. The idea Mm -hmm. of people sitting down and relaxing for once. Well, also people sitting down and relaxing and people going into their backyard and harvesting their own food and being self-sufficient doesn't make companies rich either. Yeah. Um, so they're going to, again, push to get away from that as far as possible. Right. Cause they, well, you know, everybody has bills to pay and I get it. Like NBC's bills are bigger than my bills, but they still got to pay their bills, you know? And, yeah. and, and um, it's, it's just, a machine that's running that that we take to be a force of nature we take money to be a force of nature in the world but it's something we invented it's not something we can't change 
like gravity, you know, mm-hmm. or oxygen. And it's going to take, and, and that's why I've, I've been encouraged to see all these new cryptocurrencies and new ways of thinking about money and new ways of valuing, you know, ecological assets versus economic assets. Um, people are starting to th- kind of pick at the edges of the economy and say, what the hell do we really value here? What is valuable? Mm. You know, is it, do we, are we really just stacking paper or are we stacking the means by which we, you know, by which we support and feed each other? So I really have, despite everything that's going on in the world, tremendous hope for the future. I really think humans, I think we're going to pull it out if for no other reason than we're very talented survivors, you know, like mm. if our species is good at anything, it's surviving, you know, we don't have claws, we don't have fangs, we're not the strongest thing in the woods. Mm-hmm. We're just these blood bags running around with no defense. And yet, mm-hmm. and yet we survive because we're, we're clever and, 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 um, I think when push comes to shove, and I think push is coming to shove now, the human race is going to figure it out and and learn how to, on a global scale, make the earth healthier and stronger for everybody and everything on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Talk to us a little bit about, I know you've got a major um, funding campaign with Steward right now. Talk to us a little bit about what that entails. Well, that's 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 fun. Um, Stuart is a great organization. Uh, I, I cannot say enough good about them um, for a reason you'll understand in a second, but um, they, they came out of, is my understanding, the Fundrise um, crowdfunding platform um, started by a guy named Dan Miller, who Fundrise was primarily for real estate projects, like fixing up community centers and stuff like that mm-hmm. or and allowing a community to invest in itself where sometimes they couldn't get funding, traditional funding to um, reinvest in their community and in the buildings there. Um, and he, he can, you know, you should interview him and he'll correct me where I'm wrong. But, um, but then he said, you know, let's do this for regenerative agriculture. There's so much that needs fixing up, quote unquote, in the, in the landscape. Let's start a platform like Fundrise for ecosystems. And so mm-hmm. he started Steward uh, with the same kind of model where um, they create participated loan campaigns that look like GoFundMe or Kickstarter, but they're not donations. They're not asking for gifts. They're soliciting loans, secured loans from people, not f- and they give that money to regenerative farms for projects. And then, therefore, then the community that supports that regenerative farmer project earns a return on their loan while the, the farmer project gets access to capital that they wouldn't otherwise because they're a small farm and it's so hard to get financing. So my, my family farm, uh, my wife's family farm, the one we're on, Studio Hill, is kind of horseshoe shaped, right? Okay. And in the middle of the horseshoe is a hilltop on which sits a gorgeous large home that was built there in 2002 and it's nice it's gorgeous 
but it's it was kind of a bummer when that got built right for the family because it's like oh man now we got this thing looking down on us and yeah you know we're we're grateful it wasn't 50 homes up there and we're grateful that the family that was here was wonderful but um still kind of like a bummer on the landscape and so one day that neighbor walks down the hill and he and he says hey uh we're moving to florida do you want to make an offer on my house i know you were you said years ago that you were interested in yeah maybe making an offer and i said uh yeah great thank you he said great i'll give you a month i'll put it on the market in a month which was tremendous but i didn't have the money Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah i was like oh damn it you know i figured it would be 40 years from now or yeah his kids were grown and gone because his kids are still there and in school anyway so like i i was panicking i'm like i have a month to figure this out and then i sit down at my desk my head still spinning and I get an email from our neighbor to the south who says, you know, I'm getting offers on my land sight unseen from people in Connecticut who were all fleeing COVID. Yeah, yeah. And um, he's like, I told you I'd never sell, but, you know, it's time. Do you want to make an offer on my land? And this was the same Thursday afternoon. I'll never forget it. And so wow, two of my neighbors uncoordinated asked me if I would buy them out. And I had, I don't know, maybe... $18 in a savings account, you know, I mean, yeah. it was, it was one of those days. Yes. It, it was just scraping it by But what we had was a, a, a profitable business on the farm in livestock and Airbnb, and it was supporting the land and the family. And, and um, so I wrote up a quick business plan um, to expand both enterprises onto this new land and into the new houses that were on this land. And, I shopped it around to every bank in the region that I had a relationship with. And I was like, you know, this is the business expansion plan for the farm. And uh, they were very nice. And some of them even came out and toured the property. And then with four days left to my deadline, because I spent 26-ish days working on this with the banks, they're like, nope, we're not going to fund it. It's small ag and we don't have money for that. It's too risky. And, you know... (sighs) broke my heart and I didn't know where to turn. And then a a cousin of ours sent me a link to steward and said, maybe you should talk to these guys. And so I got on the phone, sent them the business plan. They said, this would be the biggest project we've ever done. It's awesome. Let's try. And, um, and then we worked it out. They did the due diligence on me, which was thorough like really deep and thorough but flexible more flexible than banks could be which i appreciated mm-hmm. and um they had more leeway because they're a small private lending company and um and we worked it out and they they sent me the money i needed to make offers on those two properties and and then we closed on the two properties and they became part of the family farm and and now we're in this participated loan campaign portion of it to raise up the rest of the funds that we needed to pay off the bridge loan they furnished and then and then um get the working capital we need to expand the flock um remodel one little airbnb and and get those up and running and and so that's been a a few months of this participated campaign running where you know we have our page at at steward and um, my job is to, you know, 
promote it out as best I can to my networks. Um, yeah. And they promote it out to their networks of funders and people from all over the world have been donating to our campaign um, with the nicest notes and the, and, and it just, you know, there's one person who gives a hundred dollars a week out of a savings account every week without fail. Mm-hmm. And it is just so, so meaningful to see all this support rain in just helping us grow and regenerate more land and, and through our farm stays business, um, show more people, you know, the clouds of butterflies and the, and the flock of sheep and the tall grass and the abundance that can be created. Um, and, and I call it hope tourism. You know, people come in and they feel restored and hopeful and they go home and they tell their friends, you got to go see this. And so we're just trying to build this, this stream of people to come through the farm and see what we're doing and, and, and go see other farms that are doing it. And, and there are more impressive examples out there, I'm sure, mm-hmm. but, but we're proud of what we're doing. Anyway, Stuart said yes when everybody else said no and really worked with us to make it happen. And so we just crossed $1.2 million raise today. And so we have a hundred and some odd thousand dollars left to raise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's coming in in chunks of $100, $500, $1,000 now. And it's just, it means the world. And so lenders are getting, you know, 6% interest on their loan for um, six, seven years, sorry, seven years. And, and then they're paid off in full after seven years. So if it's a, it's just a great model that allows people with savings accounts that aren't earning much to put their money into regenerative projects that, that really speed the regeneration of natural resources and ecosystems in the, in the world um, in, in a way that without steward, you know, how else would you do that? You know, there's no other way, no other great way to do that. So it's been, it's been a huge win for us. My wife and I still get teary when we think about all that's happened in the last few years and how mm-hmm. Stuart, Stuart came through for us. And oh, my, my uncle, my wife's <laughs> uncle who lives with us, who is an old farmer, old timey farmer, um, and very used to people not helping farms. Yeah. You know, he's kind of curmudgeonly and bitter. And I told him what we'd done. And he just looked at me like staring with a blank face for a good 15 seconds. And he shook his head and he walked away. And I was like, what, what was that about? Is he, is he angry about this or what's going on? And he came back to me the next day and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Jesse, I don't know what kind of fancy footwork you pulled to buy that place, but we could have had a real disaster up there. (laughs) yeah yeah like he was he was like literally speechless that anybody would come and lend us enough to buy that place and expand Mm. a farm in this time um but but you know and then it just goes to show how wounded wounded farmers are and distrustful and um nobody can blame them yeah but i hope we're able to turn that around in the next coming years and we need them we need farmers to we need the managers of the ecosystem and those who know how to regenerate it working as hard as they can as fast as they can with all the support they need mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely well jesse it's been an honor to have you on the podcast i really appreciate your time and your uh you're just 
honesty and your, your passion for this has been great. So I really appreciate you coming on and uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your story. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Michael. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.